Well, I think circling back to, you know, when I talked about my mom and her work as a child protective service investigator, I feel like the work I'm doing now makes a difference. Not always, of course, but there's times, you know, in the, I've had a, a person come up to me in the grocery store and, and say, you know, are you so-and-so? And I say, yes. And she'll say, well, you, um, you took me out of my mother's home when I was a child. And I'll be like, oh gosh. <laughs> and she's like, no, you saved my life and um, blah, blah, blah. And thank you. And can I give you a hug? And that gal that I talked about that was kidnapped and taken out in the snow every time I see her, uh, she was actually, she was pregnant at the time. So now I see her and that, and that child. And uh, she always, you know, thanks me and tells people, oh, this, this person saved my life. And, you know, I don't feel like I saved her life. She saved her life by her smart thinking. But that's, that's what my reward is, feeling like I've made a difference. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. That's Jackie Nichols, a detective with the Asotin County Sheriff's Office in Western Washington. Jackie is the only detective working for the Asotin County Sheriff's Office, which is responsible for providing law enforcement services to this sparsely populated yet geographically large county in the southeastern corner of the state. Asotin County is just a few miles south of the confluence of the Snake and Clearwater Rivers. In addition to being near the confluence of the two rivers, Asotin is at the confluence of multiple jurisdictions. This county of slightly more than 22,000 people is 641 square miles and straddles the Oregon and Idaho borders and is not far from the Nez Perce Reservation and it's a place where citizens often cross into multiple jurisdictions during their daily routines, and law enforcement agencies have to collaborate closely with each other on a daily basis. Jackie once joked that the only reason she got the job is because she, quote, is the only one who wanted to do it. In reality, Jackie has a storied career in law enforcement she was the first person who responded to the missing persons report for Rachel Anderson and was involved in that investigation, which led to the arrest of Charles Capone, a relative of Al Capone and an Idaho man who received a life sentence for the 2010 murder of Anderson, who was his estranged wife. The conviction was built on circumstantial evidence that Anderson, who lived in Washington, was lured 40 miles north to Capone's auto body shop in Moscow, Idaho, killed and then brought back down to Clarkston, Washington, where she was dumped off the Red Wolf Crossing Bridge and into the Snake River. The bridge is an important site of another one of Jackie's cross-jurisdictional cases that started with a missing person. In 1981, 22-year-old Kristen David a student at the University of Idaho who disappeared between the campus in Moscow and Clarkston, Washington. Her body was found in the Snake River underneath that same bridge. Kristen's case was later linked to four other disappearances in Idaho and Washington. The other victims in that case 
are 21-year-old Christina Nelson and 18-year-old Brandy Miller. 35-year-old Stephen Parasol and 12-year-old Christina White. Stephen Parasol and Christina White are still missing. Jackie still scours fields, wells, basements, buildings, and bodies of water in search of the bodies of Anderson and other missing victims. Jackie was born in Massachusetts and grew up in Vermont. She graduated from college with a graphics arts degree. She was a stay-at-home mom, a veterinary technician, and a corrections officer before becoming a detective. She has four children and was married to Ben Nichols, the prosecuting attorney for Soton County, who tragically died last May in a motorcycle crash in the county. Today, we're going to discuss cold cases, the advances in DNA as a law enforcement tool, the legal hurdles that can get in the way of utilizing it to solve cases, difficulties with cross-jurisdictional investigations, and the problems that can arise when certain types of missing persons cases are not treated like they could be murders. Hey, Jackie, I just wanted to thank you for joining. It's kind of, it's almost surreal uh, to have the conversation and to have met you earlier this year, because I remember seeing you on the Cold Valley uh, documentary and and thinking to myself, like, you know, if anything ever happens to me, I want this woman looking into the case. Oh. I was just really impressed by all of the effort, the dogged effort that you were putting into um pursuing that one case that I imagine just by listening to you, it wasn't just that case. It was a lot of what you did. So I am really honored to have you on and I appreciate it. Oh gosh. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on and I appreciate all the research and work that you've done um, to put together the podcast. And I'm happy to be here and uh, honored to be talking to you too. Oh, that's awesome. You know, one of the things that I was just curious about, because I've read a number of profiles about you, I've read about you doing things at schools uh, for educating kids and the cases you were working on. I was just curious just how you originally ended up getting into law enforcement and then ultimately becoming a detective. So it was a kind of a circuitous route uh, to the position I'm in today. Um, which I think having some different background experiences in life has helped me um, just having some of that diversified experience, you know, with graphic design and being a veterinary technician and volunteering in my kids' schools. It just exposed me to a lot of different people, a lot of different backgrounds. And therefore, when I'm talking with people in, as a detective, I can draw from that experience. And so uh, that is very helpful. A lot of different perspectives being able to, yeah. And and all of those are sort of, you know, like, it's funny. So, you know, parenting, I've always said that there should be an episode, we should do an episode on the job of being a parent itself. Right. The job I'd probably lay on top of that. But yeah, the, I just when I was reading your bio, I was just surprised. Did you start with graphic design, and then the, was I the did. Yeah. Uh, I 
you know, I I originally as a child thought I was going to be a veterinarian, and I thought somehow that would just miraculously happen without having to study or work hard in school. So it was kind of a shock when I went to college and, you know, those classes were really hard. <laughs> and so <laughs> Too much science. <laughs> yeah, so I sort of migrated to graphic design, which was sort of on the polar opposite spectrum of studying. Um, but I really enjoyed it and I did work hard at that and, um, did work at that for a while, but it was not, uh, sort of emotionally fulfilling. My, um, mm. uh, mom had been a child protective service investigator when I was growing up. And that seemed like a, a job that really tried to help people and make a difference in the world. And I felt like I was just, you know, making art, but even in graphic design, it was kind of like, just creating paper that was going to get thrown away or advertising that, you know, people really weren't, you know, excited about. Necessarily thrilled about. But you, so your mom worked in child pers- protective services as an investigator when you were growing yeah. up. What, yeah. what was that like? I Because I've worked with, in some of the mental health work I've done, mm-hmm. I've worked with mm-hmm. CPS, you know, officers who are assigned to cases and, you know, work with us with the families. Then I've also mm-hmm. worked with the ones who like, you know, on the emergency call, bang on the door with the cops in the middle of the night. Yeah. Like, well, how, how does mom come home and talk about her job? <laughs> and that's it. Well, and um, I, I have to hand it to her. She kind of insulated me from, you know, the uh, ugly, difficult parts of the job. You know, my impression was that she was just out saving children. Um, mm. and you know, some of that was just m- me being naive too, but, uh, but I definitely had the sense that she was doing important work and I kind of wanted to have that feeling too. And I had been interested in law. I loved animals. I kind of had like this, uh, probably undiagnosed ADHD, but interest in a lot of different areas and, uh, law was one of them. And so when my kids were young, I worked part-time at a veterinary clinic, and that was a great job for when my kids were in school because it was flexible and it was part-time, And but it didn't have any benefits. And really, if you weren't going to be a veterinarian, it's you know not a job you're going to move up. Uh, there's nowhere else to go, really. Right, yeah. And again, I had this kind of naive sense that I would go in and save animals. And in reality, there's there's kind of a lot of sadness and tough things that happen at a veterinary clinic. Mm. So you think about that, that a lot of, yeah, a lot of the moments are moments where you can't save an animal. Right, right. Or a person can't afford to save one. Right. And that's really tough. Um, so, you know, it, I loved it. I brought my work home with me. I had a bajillion animals. They were all on death's door for one reason or another. <laughs> but, uh, but when there was an opening at our local jail as a corrections officer, I took the civil service test for that and thought that would be a way to kind of get my feet wet in law enforcement um, without, you know, committing to being on the road and being a patrol officer. Was this out in, were all these jobs in Washington when you had moved to the? Yeah, yeah. So I I was born on the East Coast and there until I was around five years old. And then my family moved to the West Coast area-ish 
I mean, we're really on the eastern side of Washington State, which isn't the coast, but depending where you're at geographically. New Yorkers think you're on another planet. Right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the uh, and and so you started working in the jail in the local jail and how was yeah. that? What was that like? A lot of people don't have any idea what it's like. Yeah, that, right? and and I liked it. Um, you know, I learned a lot about the law because I was able to read the cases and uh, you know um, what people were in for and how they got arrested and it was all fascinating to me and but also learned that. Uh, all these people coming through the jail, they were all people like we're all people. Some of them, you know, may have had mental health issues. Some of them had addiction issues. Some had both. Most of them were not just making poor choices. They had some really severe life difficulties that were causing them to be in the positions they were. The ones that, you know, made a mistake, they weren't our repeat offenders. The ones that really had some difficulties in their life were the ones that continue to come back. And then yeah. I never even thought of that, that in a weird way, being in a jail would be a great opportunity. I mean, like if you were a psychologist or if you were, right. you know, doing, because you get an opportunity to see the case and mm -hmm. like, we all have these ideas of what, like, someone who commits assault or robbery or murder. Right. Like, but then actually being able to see the real person and match it to the case file. Right. Later, that must yeah. have been interesting. And it's very interesting to me. And there are a few, there, there are a few that just are, you know, they're sociopaths or a uh, psychopath or however you would label them now, just have no empathy and concern. Um, but not a lot of them. Most of them are just, you know, I don't want to say they're victims of their circumstances because they certainly make choices. I mean, other people face great life difficulties and don't commit crimes. But it gave me a better perspective, I think, of what causes someone to commit a crime and why and and how to investigate it. Yeah, I think one of the things that probably reporting on crime taught me was that like you know at some point the vast majority of us were just a little baby trying to survive in the world and you know because of our genetics or our experiences or our lack of opportunity or whatever it is or the reverse right that mm -hmm. we got all the good things a lot i think i learned that a lot more of why i lived the life I did, the good life I did, had less to do with how brilliant I am <laughs> and more to do with my circumstances than I thought. All right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I am. So, so how did you make, how did you transition from corrections to, um, so there was a patrol, patrol position open. And so, um, I tested for a patrol position and, got that. And then I worked in patrol for a while and then our detective position came open. And so I applied for that and, uh, really was the only person that wanted it. So the only um, person in the police department who wanted it. <laughs> well, yeah, our, our department is very, very small. And the, the thing that really appealed to me at the time about the detective position was that, um, it was day shift and it had weekends off and, you know, I still had kids at home then and that was an ideal schedule. 
Um, it involved a lot more paperwork and a lot more, you know, interviewing people and reading and researching and, you know, not the the stuff that the guys thought was fun, driving fast and arresting people and all of that stuff. So yeah. it's a pretty big county, right? You were the only detective for the entire. Yeah, ge- geographically it's big, but uh, population wise, it's small. Small. And so, so, so you had, so you ended up transitioning after being an officer, becoming a detective. Are there any, from just your perspective, cases across your career or moments across your career that sort of stick out to you or stand out to you? Oh, sure. You know, there's, there's certainly things that happen that you, you know, you think, oh, I, you couldn't even make this up. Like these things are just too fantastical to be true and 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 there's small cases that you know worked out great and big cases and yeah there's a lot but the ones that kind of stand out to me are where i was able to actually resolve something a lot of detective work is trying to find the answers to things and understand why things happen and how they happened and uh trying to figure that out without having all the pieces or having people lie to you or hide things so it's it's pretty rewarding when it all comes together and you see the big picture. The puzzle solving piece of it. I right. always joke. Someone was asking me recently why didn't as a writer, why didn't you become a fiction writer? And I said, You cannot make up reality. Like right. <laughs> I, yeah, in my imagination, I could not make up the things I've seen. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. What is um I was curious, you mentioned the part about uh, when things come to resolution and what does resolution look like in a, when you're a detective, is it always an arrest conviction or just getting an answer about what happened or, you know, cause I, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, it sounded almost like somebody solving a puzzle solver. Right. Solving, yeah. Solving I, I think, um, conviction is always, uh, feels like a win, you know, when I go to trial and a case is going to a jury, you know, I just hope and pray for the right thing to happen. You know, I don't pray to win or hope to win um, because it's not about winning and losing. It's about the right thing happening. And, you know, most of the time, I mean, I would say all of the time, 100% of the time, when one of my cases goes to trial, I don't have any doubt uh, about the the guilt of the suspect. Um okay. But Maybe doubt about whether the the case because the thing about that puzzle solving that you're involved in that I I've all it is solving puzzles, but you'll never have all of the pieces. Right. Even if you have enough that's beyond reasonable doubt, you'll never have all of the pieces. Right. Right. Um. There is that you know you uh, there's one case that you know it just felt like things came together. So this young woman was abducted by her estranged partner and he tied her up and blindfolded her and threw her into the back of his car after assaulting her, strangling her, um, keeping her in, in her apartment for quite a while and then driving her somewhere where she didn't know, taking oh, wow. clothes off and throwing them out into the wilderness driving further and dumping her uh, behind a barn. Wow. Then, and it was in the snow. It was in the winter, so there was snow. 
Then he came back an hour or so later and picked her up and drove her back, I think, to the apartment. So at some point, she was able to get away and call for help. But it was really kind of a fantastic story. For sure. Yeah, if somebody walked in the door with that story, you would be like, Yeah, and so you're like, okay. Um, You know, I listened to all of it. I'm like, what are we going to do? But she was able to, to tell me about the road. And she was able to tell me about what she could see a little bit out of the corner of her eyes. And with that information, I just, I figured there was two places she could have driven in the, he could have driven in the county that matched that. And I went out right away because it was snowy weather and I didn't want any evidence to melt or disappear. And I was able to see a spot where someone had pulled off the side of the road and I saw footprints and I followed those footprints over to a fence line. And lo and behold, there was a pile of clothing. Her clothes, wow. Her clothes. So then I drove further and I was able to find the place where he stopped and took her out behind this barn. And there was a you know depression in the snow. And so I was able to photograph that. And so that was a case where, oh my God, she told me what happened. I went out and the evidence was there and I was able to collect it and it matched her story. And there was a lot more to it, but, and that pretty amazing that she even remembered that that those details. Yeah. It resulted in a life sentence conviction for this person, partially based on their record and other things they had done. So in that particular case, you know, I feel like everything kind of came together and that's unusual and we had a conviction. So that's wild because that story, I don't know whether it made the news there, but I am just thinking on the other side of the continent, that's the kind of thing that, you know, if it, if it happened, it wouldn't necessarily be the front page headline. Right. Yeah jurisdictions but she was a second away from from probably death i mean not even if he didn't even if his full intention was to go back and get her all it would have taken is her wandering off and not being able to right right yeah so So you were able to arrest him quickly i imagine yes yes yeah. yeah that was quickly resolved um, but then we have the case like the Rachel Anderson case, which was a multi-jurisdictional case, um, took several years, a uh, very arduous case, but we were able to get a conviction, a no-body homicide conviction in that case. So that was rewarding. Even though we, you know, you, you say it's rewarding, you're still not able to bring that person back to the family. So, you know, that's bittersweet. Yeah, yeah. That Rachel Anderson, that's the one where I, I th- it, that was the one where um, it was a wife or an estranged wife in Moscow, I yes. know, or, or yeah. her husband lived there or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, they had, they had been living here in Asotan County. And then when they split up, he had a mechanic, car mechanic shop up in Moscow. And so he just moved up. Uh, with some friends in Moscow and continued to work at his shop. Yeah. And and, and was there a second person involved in that case? Right. Yeah. Friend of his. Yeah. Yeah. Friend of his. And they had brought the, I think I'm remembering this right. So correct Mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong, 
But the suspicion was that they had brought her body 30 miles down toward the Snake River or something like that. Yeah, we really, we didn't know. We knew that he had done her in and we knew that the accomplice had helped in some fashion. There was enough information to tell us that, but we didn't know what they did. And finally, when they were charged and both indicted, that's when the accomplice made his deal to tell us what happened. How, so, oh, ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. How, how in a situation where you have no body, theoretically the person could still be alive, is it forensic evidence that tells you, or how do you even decide? It's actually really mostly circumstantial evidence in that here's a person living their life with lots of contact with children and grandchildren, lots of phone calls, lots of financial activity, and they just go silent um, mm. on the day that they were meeting with this estranged spouse. Mm. That's the last contact with anybody ever. Um, and so in that regard, you know, having two or three years go by was in our favor in that we could show her, you know, her social security card was, her number was never used again. Her financial information was never used again. She never contacted a grandchild, a child, a parent, a sister, brother, nobody. She just simply disappeared from everything, which in our modern times is, that's really hard to do. Difficult, right? Hard yeah. to pull off. Yeah, you would probably have to have a lot of cash to be able to just disappear like that, which she didn't have those means. Um, and then there was... You know, the fact that she was seen in Moscow, Idaho, multiple times. She's on, you know, cameras at, you know, the the store buying a six-pack of beer. She There's a receipt from McDonald's getting, uh, you know, food. There's the clerk that saw her at the computer store. So multiple people saw her in Moscow, Idaho, um, shortly before the time she disappeared. And then, uh, you know, her phone was last activity was in Moscow, Idaho. Um, no evidence she ever left Moscow, Idaho. And then there was blood in her car. Not enough blood to say that she was dead, but blood. Mm. So, and she had told her friend that she was going, when she went to Moscow that day, she was going to tell uh, her estranged spouse that their relationship was over. Ah, uh, so all the pieces sort of like... Yeah, so forward. all of that circumstantial evidence added up to, you know, she's she's dead. And then there was, then we could show the extensive amount of work we had done to try and find her. And so that period of time was kind of in our favor too, where we had spent three years exhausting every type of search that you can imagine uh, to find this person and followed up on multiple leads of, you know, people seeing people that they thought was her and following those leads and showing that it wasn't her. Right. So it's the absence. It's almost like the absence yeah. ever tells the right. the story. What's missing tells the mm -hmm. story. So kind of a, a couple of things that you said. One, um, you know, the, uh, wanting to be a veteran, veterinary technician <laughs> yeah. made me think of this. Also, um, you mentioned the part about like in our modern times, it's hard to go missing. W when I originally saw you on the documentary, it was about the Lewis Clark uh, Va Valley serial killer case, you know, and that's a, a, 
case where, and you'll probably tell the story better than than I would, that involved a number of people who went missing at different points. Yeah. Um, and then, and all ended up, you know, it's it's more likely if a person goes missing that they've just wandered off, they haven't been kidnapped, then, you know, the next might be that they're kidnapped or there's an accident or something like that. Right. And it's rare, more rare that it's a murder, much less a serial, potentially right. serial murder. Um, right. And I was just thinking of, I, I was actually thinking about Christina Nelson, one of the victims and her interest in being a uh, a vet. And then Steve Parasol, who, you know, I think we know or that we people have concluded that he's um, dead because of yeah. uh, his absence on the radar screen. Do, right. say, do you want to say anything about that case really quickly or anything you want to yeah, share well, about Kind of a you know a group of cases, a cluster of cases that happened in our area in the late seventies, early eighties, which I call kind of the golden era of serial killers, um, because because of the lack of te- technology combined with the freedom that young people had, sort of resulted in the ability of people to go missing for long periods of time unaccounted for. And the sort of attitude that, uh, you know, the leave it to beaver attitude that everything will be okay and everything is fine and there's nobody evil in the world. And um, those kind of events allowed serial clubs to really wreak havoc. Yeah, we were really innocent, I think, Mm -hmm. for a Mm -hmm. while in that time. Yeah. So in those cases, I think that's what whatever the you know whoever the suspect or suspects are in those cases it allowed them to get away with their crimes for so long um i'm still hopeful that technology may catch up with them uh before they pass on and you know maybe someone can still be held accountable but that that's the frustration of missing persons cases and i every time i see a missing persons case come up on our computer screen i i kind of panic because um, those are the cases that are most difficult and heart-wrenching, I think. Um, of course, you know, deaths and homicides are very heart-wrenching, but to just not know what happened to your loved one, not know where they are, I can't even imagine how hard that would be. Yeah, there's something about having no no resolution. And even even if you even if you have strong suspicions. Right. Um, yeah. And I remember when we were when we when we met, one of the things that you said that really struck me was, you know, the the danger in not treating missing persons cases seriously, even though many of them end up not right. resulting in a murder. There's a lot of danger in not doing that. There is, yeah. Yeah. It it can seem frustrating sometimes because you know you you get this missing person case or missing juvenile case and you do all the things, you know, you you gather the paperwork and you get the picture and you enter it all and you get it into a, you know, the national database and you know and then as soon as you've done all of these things, they turn up. And so then right. you have to kind of undo all of that and it's it can be frustrating. I get it. But those are the precious moments and if information gathering that is so critical in a case that turns into something else. Yeah, I am. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, since, you know, over the years, we've gotten 
better with all sorts of, you know, you've got cell phone, the ability to track oh, people yeah. with cell phones. You've got forensic evidence that can be analyzed in, in new and different ways, cameras um, yeah. everywhere. But, yes. but I do, I do think there's something to be said for that initial mm-hmm. reaction and that default we have to that person ran away or something went on. on. And when I visited, um, Soton, I went to all the Christina White, who is the 12 year old mm-hmm. who disappeared there. And was that 79, 1979? Yes. And I kept on thinking to myself it, it, one of the things, you know, about the geography there, you know, if you've read about a case, I think sometimes until you put your f- feet on the ground, you don't really fully understand it. And I just, I, one of the things that really struck me was the place that she went missing from was so close to her home. It yes. was so unbelievably close. And I just wonder whether if cases like that were handled differently, not not to say that you know, we would have an, we would have a better answer if that makes sense. Right, right. It may not have changed the outcome at all, but it was treated like she had just wandered off and she would turn up and and it was it's hard to say because you know i wasn't there um and in those days there was a lot of things that are that that were done differently i mean reports were typed on a typewriter and so reports were much shorter <laughs> than they are now um a lot of times an officer would handwrite a report and a, and a secretarial staff would type it up later. And you can imagine things would get lost in the translation. Right. A lot of stuff was passed word of mouth and never made it into a report. Uh, and, and now for a cold case, that's, that information is not reliable. You can't take a piece of information like that into court. You can't say, well, everybody knows that so-and-so did this or that. Because you can't subpoena everybody into court. Yeah, because where's my evidence, right? Right, right. You know, the the prosecutor can't stay up and, you know, say, Your Honor, I subpoena everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't they wish, though? Yeah, right. Right. (laughs) Because they're all going to say, everybody's going to tell you. Well, you have to have a report that says that. So even if it was good information, it's it's not good anymore. So it's not something. Well, one of the things that, you know, we had also talked about was like the potential for the use of sort of DNA and helping, you know, solve murders or find missing people or identify, you know, identify unidentified bodies. And, you know, I was thinking about just the region and the area that you're in and that you have so many, so much wilderness and, and multiple jurisdictions, Native American reservations, all sorts of, I guess, different groups of people who have mm-hmm. to, that's hard enough, right? Collaborating as law enforcement agencies. Yes. Yeah. And I was wondering whether there, what the sort of strengths are or the things that, you know, can be done with DNA and whether, what kind of obstacles get in the way? Because one of the things we're talking about a lot now is like the um, genetic genealogy mm-hmm. as a tool to help solve some of these cases. But I'm wondering, you know, where where it can be helpful and where some of the obstacles yeah. might be. So a DNA is a multifaceted, oh, tool in, in that uh, it can give us some fantastic, really solid results 
but it also is subject to a lot of interpretation and your experts that give you that information and testify at trial and things like, and I'm no expert by any means. Um, I just have sort of a rudimentary knowledge of DNA, but I do know that it is beginning to resolve a lot of cold cases and I've looked at it in, you know, how could it help us with our cases? And the difficult thing in our cases is that the, the ones that I've worked on, we don't have evidence from the suspect left at the scene. So our, at least at this point, I mean, we've tried to develop that from our, our evidence, you know, from clothing and bodies and things left behind. And at this point, we have not been able to develop any suspect DNA from that evidence. So we don't have anything to compare. There's national, there's a national database of convicted offender DNA. That's CODIS, is that what it's CODIS, called? Yeah. yeah. And that's the, the national database. And it's um it's highly regulated in that there's only certain types of people DNA people's DNA that can be entered into it and certain types of DNA that can be compared to it. The idea being that if someone has left evidence behind at a crime scene, you could take that evidence, DNA evidence, and enter it into CODIS, and it might tell you who the offender is because they've offended before. The difficulty of that is, is that people believe we have this system that you just, you know, swab something and give it to the FBI, and the FBI magically tells you. In where- two hours. <laughs> right, right. And it's and it's a hundred percent, and it's that person, and end of story. And it's you know there's about a bajillion steps in between those two things um, that you know can go awry or don't happen or aren't possible. So I've you know looked at every different way that we could use DNA uh, in the the cases that are being solved with genealogy. Uh, you know, as people are voluntarily getting their DNA done and um, putting it into databases like Ancestry.com and those types of things, you know, they're making these connections. And so law enforcement has looked at that and said, well, you know, look at this suspect DNA we have. We can compare this to these other people and see if we have some familial connections. And that's how they're kind of starting to solve these cases. And then once they make that familial connection, then they still have to do the detective work and say, okay, how is how is this family member connected to this person who's the victim of our crime? Right. And, oh, well, their brother lived next door to them or, you know, whatever it is, they still have to do that detective work and then still get a sample from that person and, and you know, work their way toward yeah, confirming it magically happen um it still takes quite a bit of work but it does give you that peace like the the recent cadence in moscow which has gotten a lot of national attention of the four young college students that were murdered um genealogical dna was used in that because dna was collected from a trash pole or what you know collecting someone's garbage and then from the garbage getting a dna profile and then that profile matches Familial wise, doesn't match directly, but the DNA from that garbage, which was apparent to the DNA left at the crime scene. So, who's that person's child? That's how you make that determination. Yeah, yeah, and in some yeah. cases, it's not as easy because you might have two or three people in a family yeah. that are living. 
yeah. in a certain place. You know, one of the things that you, you, you said a little bit earlier, and as you were talking, it got me thinking, kind of curious about this. You mentioned that, you know, having suspect DNA to compare to the profile. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a crime where you have a ton of circumstantial evidence mm-hmm. pointing towards someone, but you don't have the suspect DNA, you know, yet, right? right? Are you yeah. are you allowed to go get DNA before there, you can? Yeah, there's various ways you can do that that are, you know, that's legal. Just like your fingerprints, you leave DNA everywhere that you go. Um, and so it's kind of like leaving your fingerprints behind. It's pretty easy to collect that. And what that does is, okay, you've got a lot of circumstantial evidence that this is your person. Um, you collect some left behind DNA, whether it's at a restaurant or a thrown away cup or a tossed aside cigarette, but, and that DNA from that item matches the DNA from your suspect. Well, then you write a search warrant and you say, okay, this is what's happened. Now I want to collect DNA directly from that person. From that person. Yeah. You, know, I, you just reminded me of something that's really funny that I haven't told you. So when I you know, went to meet you, I was meeting with uh, Brandon Tran from the Snake River Killer podcast and then Gloria Boberts, who's Christina mm-hmm. Nelson's cousin. And, you know, uh Gloria or Brandon had sent me a text message that you were going to be there that morning. And I, I have this friend, Julia Cowley, who's a former FBI profiler. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Jackie's going to be there. And she said, wait a second, the detective's going to be there? <laughs> she said, "She said, uh, don't take any offers of water. But Bring your own straw. Right, exactly. Exactly, gloves and your own straw. But <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah. And one of the things I think people have a hard time getting an idea, you know, with DNA as a... You know, the fact that we drop it everywhere, that we leave it, you know, the way the law is, the idea is if you discard something, right, if I take my trash and I put it in the curb. um, I once had a friend who was prosecuted, (laughs) (laughs) joked that if if you commit a crime and you throw it in your trash bag, put the trash bag in the back of your car and drive around with it forever. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just... You could just put it at your neighbor's house. Right, yes, right. Put it somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but but uh, but a lot of these things have probably, I imagine, with some of your cases, have probably allowed you to solve some cases on a base level. I mentioned sexual assaults. And yes. Other things yeah. like that that would have been much harder. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and the other part of that is that juries expect to have DNA evidence now mm. um they just expect that you know it's what so we call it the, sword yeah the we call it the csi effect and it there well there's things that are that csi shows that can be done it distorts them exaggerates them and gives this false impression of what how fast something can happen and how accurate it is anytime we get dna examined at the lab you know then we have a forensic scientist that comes and testifies about that and i don't know if you remember like in the oj trial when they were talking about the dna and they had an expert come 
and talked so yeah. so long and so scientifically about DNA that the entire world Your head was, hurt. Right? Yeah, it was like <laughs> you don't even know what you just said. And I even do that with some of the lab reports I'll get. It'll be like, you know, this part per billion and this part per trillion. And they'll use, they'll use numbers that I feel like they've made up the word. <laughs> Centrillion. Yeah. Right. And so they'll call them and I'll be like, so what does this really mean? Like what, like dumb this down for me. Cause I'm just a detective. What does this mean? Is, you know, and, and then they'll say it kind of more in layman's terms and it's much clearer, but, uh, but that's kind of a double-edged sword when you have that person testifying for a jury. Um, you really need a prosecutor that can translate that for them. You know, that, yes, this may or may not be saliva, but what are the chances it's not, like in a sexual assault case? Well, right. you know, just because they say it may or may not be, the chance may be a bajillion zillion to one that it's not. Right. So... It's it's not just a cut and dried easy. The DNA was there. It was a match. Done deal. Yeah, and I also think about things like the opposite side of it, where you may have, you know, DNA, but it 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 may match a million people across the world, or mm. it's a mixed sample, and you really have mm -hmm. a hard time telling. Um, sort of like that idea of a mixed blood sample or something like that, where you can't really figure out whose DNA is, what's DNA. They left that out of CSI and CSI right. and CSI Miami. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't they don't have mixed samples there. No, <laughs> never. <laughs> so, and sometimes those can be explained as easily as just the, you know, the person lives in a house with a man and and the laundry is done therefore you have another male dna it doesn't mean the you know that that dna was the saliva in the clothing but you mm. have to have that person that it can explain that that's an interesting point how do you tell whether dna cuz i'm just thinking about the way that we usually talk about it we're like was there dna at the scene or was how do you figure out whether DNA is relevant to the crime since there's so much of it everywhere? And now with touch DNA, we can pick up all sorts of DNA. Right. Yeah. And that's, that is a, a difficulty too, because like in sexual assault cases, we have to, um, you know, if the person has had a consensual uh, relationship with someone, you know, we have to get samples then from those people. And a lot of times, uh, those people don't want to give their DNA. Mm. You know, for whatever reason, people are protective of their DNA. I understand that. Um, they're afraid that we're going to use it for some other nefarious person purpose when we're really just trying to rule them out of a crime. And and there in those situations, is there any obligation, like legal obligation, for those people to give it, or is there any? Any... Yeah, we could write a search warrant for it if it became necessary. Okay, so it's it becomes another elaborate step. You Correct. know, we're used to talking about, I think, DNA mostly from murder cases because we focus on those. But I, I was wondering, have you guys had opportunities to use it in unidentified persons cases or to close 
missing cases. You know, I, I, I was reading recently that the um, National Missing and Unidentified Persons Database, uh, which is a federal federal DOJ database um, called NamUs, had like mm-hmm. 600,000 people said 600,000 people go missing in the U.S. each year. You know, that 4,400 unidentified uh, bodies are found. And I just, thinking to myself, all of these things and the advances and genetic genealogy, that there's probably a real opportunity when it comes to unidentified persons and missing persons. Yes. Yeah. And I think law enforcement on a whole, we're still playing catch up with that. Um, But it is happening. I see, I was looking at NamUs earlier today. And I could see that um, several agencies in our area have updated their cases, even in 2023, on the unidentified remains that have been found. Um, And I know periodically agencies that have unidentified remains go back and try to utilize any upgrades in the technology to try to identify those people or those. Sometimes it's just parts you know, river communities sometimes get just bones Mm. that wash up. And so, you know, you don't have a whole person. And I see more and more agencies are starting to upload that information. And that that potentially could resolve my cases because if Christina White or Stephen Pearsall was dumped in a river and ultimately disarticulated, there might be a piece of them out there somewhere. And DNA technology could show that that's who that piece belongs to. One of the things about those cases, you know, is talking about your dedication. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me is, like, you have left no stone unturned (laughs) in in searching for Stephen Parasol and Christina White. And I, I, I assume we are... I don't know if they're presumed dead or declared dead yet, but I was just curious for you, what is the significance for you of, even if it doesn't solve the cases, finding them? Yeah, I I would rather look and not find them than just assume that I can't find them. Um, I have pretty much exhausted all the areas I can think of to look um, but if I get some tip and it seems remotely reasonable, I'll still go out and check it out. Um, I think the likelihood of finding their remains at this point is pretty small. But if you don't look, that chance is 0%. And I'd rather be doing something than nothing. What kind of places have you looked? I mean, we talked uh, before we were on mic about the wild, vast geography around you, rivers, lakes, mountains. You guys call them hills, but I call them Mm -hmm. mountains, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I I was just thinking about something as simple as, like, the Snake River or it's the Clearwater, right? Clearwater River. Like, even just how, because I remember this in New York, the NYPD detectives had this great map of the East River and the um, uh, the East River and also um, the straits around Harlem. And they they literally had this map of, like, if you drop a body here, here's 
where it's likely to show up and it would spray. But I imagine there's probably not a map of the Snake River or or the rivers around there. How do you how do you how do you even search those areas? So it it is really difficult. Um, and I guess when I'm you know go out searching for one person or one thing, I always have all the others in mind. So like when we were searching for Rachel Anderson, we were able to get some great help with some different resources. The Navy brought in a team that searched under the Red Wolf Bridge, and uh, we had a private company that came, and they had underwater sonar, and they searched the rivers. And while they were doing that, I was also looking for, like, we have a young man that's missing from 2012, uh, Jonathan Schrattenholzer, and so, you know, I was looking for signs of him because he and his whole car disappeared. Oh, wow. And then, of course, you know, Christina White and Stephen Pearsall. So every every time I'm searching for one missing person, I'm all, I always have the other ones in mind, too. Uh, and so I've covered a lot of area, but it, it just literally is impossible to search our entire area. It's just a vast wilderness with ravines that are hundreds of feet deep, the, you know, river canyons and areas that aren't accessible by any road. It's just hard to even fathom what it's like if you if you haven't actually seen it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's why if someone gives me a tip or something like that, that's the areas that I've searched have been based on some sort of nexus to the case. Um, like I searched a vacant lot that was next door to where Christina White disappeared from because there had, had been a home standing there. It burnt. Um, the rumor was that there was a basement that could still be entered, uh, underground and kids played there and stuff like that. And that had never been searched. So I was able to arrange a search to dig out that foundation of that house on the vacant lot, things like that, where there's some, some reason to search there There, or look, uh, otherwise it's too difficult. Is it is it true or is it an apocryphal story that you was it that you put a pony in the water? What the, what is this story? <laughs> that is a true story. Um, that was the Rachel Anderson case, and the accomplice had told us that they had disposed of Rachel Anderson's body by wrapping her in a tarp. And then wrapping that in some chains that he had gotten from where he worked and then dropping her off a bridge here. And so, you know, that's when we searched the river and we searched the area and underneath the bridge and couldn't find her or anything like that. So initially I made a, a body with gravel and a tarp and um, dropped it off the bridge, you know, to kind of see where it would land. And mm. Um, searched that area and nothing. So I talked to our one of our vets here, a large animal vet, and in the spring around the same time that she disappeared and asked him if he had a around 120-pound animal, whatever it was, pass away from natural causes. I didn't want something that, you know, was cut open or mm-hmm. I wanted it to resemble a, a you know, a person that had been strangled, which is what the information was we had about Rachel. So he obliged and called me and said, hey, we had this uh, foal, a baby horse that was stillborn. 
and um, did I want it? <laughs> so I was like, yes. I, <laughs> so I, I went and got it and I went up to the place where the accomplice worked and got the same chains that he had used and got a tarp and, you know, wrapped this full. But I also got a fish finder from the University of Moscow and put the fish finder in the dead horse and then put it in the water where, you know, the other one I had dropped off the bridge, but I didn't want to drop the horse off, horse off the bridge. I didn't want to dislodge the fish finder. So um, the first couple days it sank and the first couple days it didn't move from the bottom of the river. Oh, wow. And then uh, we had a stormy weather and we couldn't go out in the boat for a few days. And we went out and the signal was gone and the the entire thing was gone. Gone. And wow. Never found it. Wow. But, yeah. And so what te- what it tells me is that the the current is it the river is deep there and the current is strong. So when the decomposition process started, that has a lot of buoyancy to it. That that brought the body up enough in the water to get it in the current. And then it went downstream. And then it went moving. And the, yeah, the and it could thing. literally go to the ocean yeah. from there. I am, um, yeah, I remember sitting on the, I guess we were in Lewiston, Idaho, on that side of the Snake River, looking toward, you know, the high desert area and just thinking to myself as sort of like an East Coaster who's used to things like the Potomac River or the Chattahoochee River, where, you know, you could probably hide a body in it. It's eventually going to show up on shore. Uh, but when I looked at the Snake River, I was like, you could hide a row of cars in that. Mm-hmm. And, and like, stack them up in order. Yes. We'll probably put two layers of them and never, never be able to see them. Right. And, right. Yeah. yeah. And there's hundreds of miles of shoreline that's inaccessible. People don't go to it. It's at the bottom of steep ravines and canyons. And so if if the whatever was to wash up, it's going to be there forever. Mm. So and it's no almost like you need a boat to even... Right. Boats to even, yeah. even check all of it. Yeah. That's wild to think a place like that. Yeah, and I am... Um, you know, you were make, making the point of the golden era of serial killers. I, you know, I... It just strikes me how many different serial killers w- have touched on that area. You have the yes. Lewis Clark Valley one. You have Hantman was there. Mm-hmm. Even I think Brian Koberger, the suspect, not a serial killer, but the suspect in the mm-hmm. University of Idaho uh, murders, drove down there the day after. I mean, <laughs> like, is there a yes, he did killer magnet? Right, <laughs> I know. <laughs> But I wonder whether it's the river, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and there was uh, Otis and Toole back. Oh, yeah. They were through here, and Bundy was through here. Um, yeah, this area did attract a lot of unsavory types. types. I, I, you know, it almost, on some levels, you know, joking about the Snake River being a great dumping ground, yeah. maybe – um, but I, I think there's probably something about the isolation of the wilderness. If you yeah. have sort of like 
behaviors that do not fit within the social mm-hmm. or societal norms. Yes. There's an yeah. opportunity for privacy, even if yeah. the non-killing part of it. Right. Um, right. A place like that. So I was just wondering what for for you, when you're investigating, let's say, a missing person's case, you mentioned you get nervous. If, yeah. When that call comes, what are what are the t- steps that you take? Like when you feel good about uh, the cases, what do you what do you do? Well, and it's um, cases that are like breaking. I I feel like I have to do everything all at once, and um, it is sort of a panicky time where I'm trying to gather information and and give out information and gather resources and find out everything I can find out and um, track down leads and talk to people and, you know, just try to, you know, I want to clone myself because I really need 10 people in those moments. Uh, Do you get help? Because one one of the things I was wondering, you're the one detective for your county. It's a point where, you know, a certain county is at a point where, you know, you've got Clarkston, Washington nearby, Lewiston, you've got the, you know, other counties in Idaho, a reservation. Do you guys, you know, because, you know, the normal on TV, we're seeing, you know, one jurisdiction, maybe the FBI involved, but usually one jurisdiction um, it, investigating a case, bunch of detectives on it, police officers. But I, I'm just sort of curious what the realities are are and what the difficulties are yeah, it's, in a region like that. For me, it's super important to have those relationships with other law enforcement agencies for help, especially with resources, uh, because I have kind of a rudimentary knowledge of, of all the things, but I'm not an expert like in computer forensics or phone forensics. Um, so I have people I can call on to help me with those things. And you know, if I need people to help me serve a search warrant, I have people I can call on to help me with that. And building those good relationships have been super important because uh, so many people have helped me so much. Um, and of course, I'm happy to return that favor anytime I can. I've done lots and lots of forensic interviews with children and had other agencies ask me to do that. And I'm always glad to help other agencies because I get so much help in return. So, so yeah, it is, it is tough and it's, it's tough to be isolated in a small County, but um, I really work hard to try to keep the communication open because we are a multi jurisdictional area and that always works in the favor of the suspects. Yeah. I was going to ask about that piece of it because, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I remember from, I forget which, I think it was one in the Lewis Clark uh, serial killer case. I remember reading an article about how, you know, one jurisdictions or multiple jurisdictions are investigating it. One jurisdiction finds the bodies, but they don't report it back to the other jur. You know, like all of those things, right. that even, even if things are sort of like, okay, can go wrong. Right. And sometimes there is sort of a territorial thing that happens between law enforcement agencies. And I think, at least in our suspect in the Lewis Clark cases, I think he he worked those jurisdictional problems in his favor. 
Um, the cases that he was linked to in California, it was a similar thing where the person uh, disappeared in one county and body was found in another county and things like that, where especially back then, communication between jurisdictions was really difficult. We didn't have the radios and the phones and the emails mm -hmm. and all of that like we do now. Yeah, and the and 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 so for you, it's a very intentional thing that you you want to make it harder for criminals to work. Yes, yeah, work against jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. I I was curiously one of the things I was also curious about, just from your perspective. You know, like for me, this has been, you know, kind of like a year of grief and loss for me with you know losing my mom. And yeah. one of the one of the things that you know, and I I I literally thanked my therapist for this a, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't seen her in a while, and I set up an appointment just to thank her. What I what I thanked her for was, you know, in my career as a reporter, I saw lots of loss and death. You know, like mm -hmm. you know. I, some of it intentional, some of it accidents, you know, the callousness of it. And over, over, over time, I had built up all these walls. Uh. Those things just, they didn't emotionally affect me. Mm -hmm. Right around COVID, I went back to therapy. And one of the things my therapist, you know, I went because of the stress and all the things I had to do. But one of the things she, she gave me this exercise she, because I was mentioning different stories from my reporting career, she was like, I want you to go in the next two weeks and count how many dead bodies you've seen, right? Mm -hmm. And so I came back with a number around 270 because I was there in New York for the 9-11 wow. um, on Ground Zero. I also covered a plane crash that was pretty bad in, yeah. in Pennsylvania. So the number got up pretty high. I mean, I think- yeah. One of the first stories I ever published was five kids who had laid under um, a train in in Manassas, uh, Virginia. So there was a lot, and wow. um, you know, and and she said, "You know, that's a lot." And I was like, "Huh? I never, I never really, <laughs> I never really thought of that." Well, now that you mentioned it, yeah, now that you mentioned it, and she's like, "It's almost all unnatural, yes, um, un unnatural death." And I yeah. think I had built walls and what what i really yeah. thanked her for was like as my mom started to get more sick you know one of the things that the therapist pointed out is that if you have all these walls they're really there to protect yourself from the grief and the pain but mm -hmm. you also lose out on the joy and you know with my mom passing in october i really wanted to thank her because the work she did to help me open up, allowed me to be present with her, to feel the joy of her, to not jump in a bottle and try and make it right. disappear. And I, I just wonder how, you know, the emotional toll, you know, for someone in your position as a detective. And I know also you lost your husband who was very young this year to a tragic accident and he was a prosecutor and I you know, mm -hmm. express my my condolences. Oh thank that, you. Yeah. There's yeah. he seemed like a great, great man from what I yeah. read. Yeah. Yeah. He he really was and we collaborated a lot uh on cases. So 
you know, I miss him at home and miss him at work too. Mm. Um, but also thankful, you know, for the years that we did have, I, I appreciate you calling him young. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what young is gets higher right. as I get older. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, same here. Same here. So, um, that's went- interesting. I, I felt, you know, it's funny. People ask me, what's the first thing I felt afterwards? It wasn't sadness. It was actually, you know, gratitude. I felt uh-huh. so lucky to have had the mom I did. Yeah. Now there's been a ton of grief and a ton well, of sadness. Of course, of right? course. But, yeah. yeah. I, I get that because I feel fortunate for the life that we did have and, you know, the relationship we had at work and the, you know, home life, you know, we had a really good life for a long time. So I do appreciate that. And yes, I agree. You know, there's a ton of grief on the flip side of that. Uh, But I, I agree. I too, you know, have definitely built those protective walls in my work because I too see tragic things, uh, violent things, you know, things that people just aren't really designed to see every day, accidents and, you know, deaths of children that just, you have to insulate yourself from those types of things or you wouldn't be able to do the work. Um, but it is different if it's a loved one. I, Ben and I both did work as coroners where we would go to unattended deaths and some of them would be natural and some would be accidents. But we, we agreed that, you know, one, one thing that was really gross was when someone died and their loved one would come rushing in and hug them and kiss them and be all over them. And we would be like, Ooh, you know, that's, that's a dead body. And how could you do that? And, and, you know, we agreed on that. Well, I was able to be with him in the hospital when he passed away. And uh, I totally got that then, because mm-hmm. you know, of course, I was saying goodbye to him, and I apologized to him, and I said, you know, look, I'm sorry, but <laughs> we were wrong. I'm gonna do that to you. I get it now. You know, this is your last chance to say goodbye, and and I'm gonna have more compassion now for for those people. Yeah, I get that too. Very similar experience to me. I had, um, you know, I had. Uh, my mom, as she was, you know, she was, as she was dying and it was a very, very peaceful death. But one of the things that because of the medication she was on, a little bit of drool would go down the side of her face. Oh, and sure. Every time that happened, I would grab a, um, you know, something to wipe it off. Mm-hmm. It happened and I was in her face for her last breath. Uh, I just grabbed her and I did the same thing. And I can never, never, never imagine doing that. You know, I think my, my, my job and all the, the loss that I, um, that I, that I saw and other people's loss that I saw, the one thing I've always thought about detectives that you guys have harder than reporters or, or even EMTs that you also have to keep a level head in the middle of tragedy yeah. because yeah. so much of it requires logic and clear thinking at a time where like everyone around you is not thinking clearly. Correct. Anymore. Yeah. And that is, that can be hard. Like I can feel myself looking at a scene and feeling the shock of it. Like, Oh my gosh, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? But then there's a part of me that says, okay, you need to 
stop being shocked about this and figure out what's going on. You know, the override the the natural reaction yeah. and bring in the uh you know more calm and calculating brain. So what do you do to sort of like let your emotions or manage your emotions or provide yourself space for? I, I think um, it was really helpful for me that I came to law enforcement later in life uh, so that it it isn't my entire life. I have, uh, you know, I had kids and now I have grandkids and I have a little mini farm and animals and I like doing home improvement projects and writing and drawing and i have a lot of interests outside of work um, so that part hasn't changed <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not at all. and um and i do have a dark sense of humor um and that helps me i know other law enforcement do um you know it's but it's it's not know, just you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you know, medical profession, reporters. I have a, a very good friend that's a reporter, so she gets it. Uh, she has it. But you were saying it helps you. How, how do you helps. think it helps? Well, I think, you know, I never want to make light of someone's tragic situation. But just like talking about how Ben and I, you know, couldn't fathom how we would, you know, fawn over a dead person – I, I found it humorous that I did yeah. and that it was him and that I could, you know, even though he was dead, basically, I could still laugh about that. Yeah. yeah. And that, that just may sound wrong to how it's coming out, but it no. is a coping, coping mechanism for me to find humor where well, I, I can. I think it makes sense because it's a way to, I, I always felt it was a way to process emotions in moments where life really didn't allow you to process yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want it to sound like I'm ever laughing at someone's tragedy because that's that's not yeah. it. It's just a coping mechanism. Yeah, you got But and- you know, I have good friends. Um, I have a good support group. I have people I can talk to. Um, you know, I don't feel alone in this. Yeah. Well, and I can only imagine, I think in so many ways in your profession, people feel alone, but to be the one detective doing, do you investigate everything? Yeah. <laughs> everything from yes. Yeah. I, so my, I really have to prioritize my cases. Um, my neighbor stole my cow to murder. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, the, but the guys I work with, they know that, you know, I'm slammed all the time. And so... My crimes against people cases take priority over property crimes. And I only really handle property crimes when we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's right. Um, but, but you know, I'll still go to the pawn shops for the guys because they work nights and someone needs to go pick up the stuff at the pawn shop or, um, you know, whatever it is that I need to do to help out. I'll do that too. And I, you know, end up covering calls and like this Monday and Tuesday, I, I did patrol because we were short staffed and so I have to wear many hats. Hats, yeah. Yes. I'm gonna, yeah. It sounds like you've been doing it since a young age. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um the I, I was gonna ask you just sort of one question before before we start to wrap up. I was gonna ask what what is it you get out of it? 
what is the thing that you get out of doing this work? Like, well, I think circling back to, you know, when I talked about my mom and her work as a child protective service investigator, I feel like the work I'm doing now makes a difference. Not always, of course, but there's times, you know, in the, I've had a, a, person come up to me in the grocery store and and say, you know, are you so and so? And I say yes. And she'll say, well, you um you took me out of my mother's home when I was a child. And I'll be like, oh gosh. <laughs> and she's like, no, you saved my life and um wow. blah, blah, blah. And thank you. And can I give you a hug? And that gal that I talked about that was kidnapped and taken out in the snow every time I see her uh, she was actually she was pregnant at the time, so now I see her and that and that child, and uh, she always you know thanks me and tells people, oh this this person saved my life, and you know I don't feel like I saved her life. She saved her life by her smart thinking, but that's that's what my reward is, feeling mm. like I've made a difference. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I am. Um, I appreciate people who. You know, like, I think people don't often think of this, and I know it may sound crazy to people, but I think so many people, more people than people would guess by the portrayals, go into work like being investigators because they want to do good out of yes. a sort of like altruistic motive. It is. It is. And even, you know, in the police academies, when you go there and you, you know, ask, why, why are you in law enforcement? A majority of them say it's because they want to help people. Right. Right. And, you know, it isn't always possible. And sometimes you have to think, like, if I'm giving someone a speeding ticket, they think I'm targeting them and picking on them and all of that. But maybe I'm helping that person not kill somebody or themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, they slow down. Right, right, right. And it's all about altering, yeah, helping us alter. I always think of it a bit like a parent, like where your job isn't, like the loving thing is not to do, to give me what I want. It's to right. give me what I need. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. I am. Yeah. Um, I wanted to give you a chance just to have any, if you have any closing thoughts or any sort of like, if there is a, a kind of message you wanted to send to people about oh. work or the kind of work that you do, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, like all the good that can come from the type of work that you're doing and the value that I, not just like, putting criminals away, but also like that little girl you talked about who you took out of her home. Just yeah. any closing thoughts. Well, I think uh, at least for law enforcement officers, uh, it, times go up and down, uh, you know, as far as public opinion about police officers. But I think, you know, as long as the good ones continue to do the right thing, um, yes, there's going to be ones that make us look bad. and But that's true in any profession, you know, whether it's lawyers or teachers or doctors or law enforcement. You got to just, you know, find your own inner peace and happiness and continue working towards what you know is right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. 
Well, thank you for, by the way, thank you for coming on. Yeah, you are absolutely. one of my heroes, whether you oh, know gosh. or not. Yeah. So. <laughs> you don't know me better then. Right, 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 right. That's what I say to people all the time. They're like, you're so <laughs> wonderful. I'm like, you clearly <laughs> don't know me well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, go go ask someone who's close to me. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, no, I really just appreciate and admire the work. Oh, thank you. You've done and that thank you, you do. Yeah. And I know the reason why we connected was because one case that involved a serial killer, but I was yeah. almost as just touched by the other work and the other. Oh, thank um, you. That you talked about. So I'm really grateful. Well, I like I said, I am honored to be on your podcast. I see how much work you've put into it and effort. And so I really appreciate what you're doing as well. Oh, thank you, Jackie. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That. Yeah. If you'd like to join us for more discussions with us and other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Silver Linings Handbook. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook podcast. We'll see you all again next week.